Hey listeners, I'm still currently in Dubai and I know you guys love our rewinds, so enjoy these stories from Just the Terror that you may have forgotten. There's another reason there's a rewind, it's because I went to a ghost town. And I'm, I'm a little afraid that a ghost attached to me and I don't want to read scary stories alone in my hotel. I'm still here for a few days. So enjoy all these wonderful stories and when I get back, we'll have some more. Road Spectre. I've encountered many things that defied logical explanation. I tend to keep those tales to myself. I don't wish to be branded as delusional or psychotic. However, I've decided to break my silence and share one of the more terrifying encounters I've had. It was in the spring of 2008. I lived and worked on the Salish Kuntanye Reservation in Mission Valley. Highway 93 was under construction during this time. So I generally drove the back roads between Ronin and Polson. One night, I'd ended up working late. I didn't leave until 2.30 a.m. These back roads are without street lights and the residents are few and far between, mostly fields and trees. On this night, the temperature had dropped enough that a fairly thick fog had risen from the irrigation ditches in the surrounding fields. I had this feeling that something else was off about the night. To drown out the feeling of creepiness, I put on a CD and cranked the volume all the way up. As I drove, I kept catching movement out of the corner of my eye. This caused me to continually glance out into the fog. About halfway to my destination, as I topped yet another hill, I would quickly glance to my left again trying to see what had moved. As I returned my vision to the road, a red ball, roughly the size of a soccer ball, bounced out into the road and stopped at the base of the hill I was descending, right in the middle of the road. No sooner had the ball stopped when a small white figure dashed out of the mist to grab it. The figure was only feet in front of my car when it reached down to retrieve the toy. In the brief moment before I hit it, I saw what appeared to be a young girl with long blonde hair, very pale skin, and a freely white dress with matching broad-brimmed hat. It bent down, grasped the ball with both hands, and as it straightened, it raised its head, revealing its face. I saw its empty eye sockets a mere second before I made contact. I had no time to swerve, break, or even blink. The girl's face was without expression. I felt it meet my eyes as the front bumper of my tempo drove through her midsection and shredded her form into mist. Shaking, I looked at my rearview mirror as soon as I passed through the specter to see nothing in the road behind me. It was only as I looked forward again that I noticed the silence in my car. I glanced down at my stereo to see that it was still lit. The display showed the seconds ticking away on the track, but nothing was coming out of the speakers. I started freaking the hell out, shaking and talking aloud to myself, arguing about whether that had really happened. After about a mile of driving and messing with my silent stereo, I returned my gaze to the road, lit a cigarette, and rolled down my window a little. I was shivering both from adrenaline and from the cold. As I tapped the ashes of my Marlboro out the window, I peeked at the rear view to see the child, sans hat, sitting in the middle of my back seat, dead eyes and a grin that split her face, looking both painful and malicious. I screamed and then was thrown forward as the nose of my car drove itself into the dirt of a ditch. As soon as the car came to a stop, my eyes shot back to the mirror to search the back seat. I spun around to look with my own eyes. The figure had vanished, 
I got out of the tempo, lit cigarettes still in my hand, and walked around the vehicle. I could find no sign of the child. After a quick inspection, I deduced that there was no damage to my car. I climbed back in, started it back up, and backed out onto the gravel road. I resumed my journey with prayers on my lips and the smell of sulfur in the air. I would take that road again many times over the next few years, and although I never encountered the child again, I was occasionally beset with the sensations of that night. Dressed too nice. In 2012, I was on a two-week trip in Berlin to find a flat and get to know my soon-to-be university. Until day 13 or so, I was really keeping my money together, so on the last day, I still had around 200 euro with me. I proceeded to take my girlfriend at the time to a fancy restaurant and bought myself a protective case for my iPhone and such. Anyway, fast forward to the night before I had to head back home and some friends who already lived there asked me to meet them at this amazing underground bar. It didn't have a sign or anything, so I had to guide myself with Google Maps in my phone. Also, I didn't have any clean clothes left, but a very fancy, good-looking outfit I took with me for the flat appointments. It was 1.30 a.m., rainy, and Google led me to a dark alley in a not-so-nice neighborhood in Berlin. But I was so focused to find that place that I didn't even notice how empty the streets were. Suddenly, a young Turkish dude who was about a head smaller than I was tapped my shoulder and told me he didn't want my iPhone, but I had to give him all of my money. As someone from a really, really crimeless town in the middle of the forest of Germany who wasn't used to something like this, I naturally just said something like, what? Uh, no. Then he proceeded to be more demanding and looked back to the next corner where about 15 to 20 guys from different ages and locations around the world stood and looked angrily and ready to beat me senseless. As I recognized this, I told him that it was my last evening in Berlin and that I had spent everything but 5 euro and just wanted to get a last drink with my friends. He called me a liar in a loud and really demanding voice as his friends started to take the first steps towards us. So still not really aware of what was just happening, I gave him my wallet and told him to take a look yourself. He saw the lonely 5 euro, suddenly became totally relaxed and laughed. Before he went back to his friends, he just said, you look like you have a lot of money, why do you dress like that in this part of this city? Then he throws me a kiss and heads back to his friends who proceed to laugh at me collectively. About 10 seconds later, I found out the bar was on the exact other side of the road. I told this story to my friends and they all bought me drinks for the rest of the night, so basically, I somehow even made money through this. Don't joke around. My friends and I decided to go on a cabin trip near Big Bear, California for two of our birthdays. It wasn't really much of a cabin, more of a house in a small neighborhood surrounded by forest. There were nine of us going and we drove in three separate cars to accommodate to everyone's schedule. The car I was riding in had four of us in it, including myself. When my car arrived, it was about 10 a.m. The sky was gray and you could feel the moisture in the air. We each ran up the stairs with baggage, groceries, and my dog in hand. We proceeded to explore the cabin. It was Krista's first time going on a cabin trip. She could be a bit paranoid. I had begged for her to come for years. She loves hearing true scary stories on YouTube. It didn't help some of the recent ones she was hearing were about cabins in the woods and vacation horror stories. The only reason she agreed to come this time was because it was mine and Michelle's birthday. Krista walked around the cabin and made sure all the windows and doors were locked. While she did that, 
Sammy, Jeffrey, and I began drinking. About 30 minutes later, car number two arrived. Michelle and her two friends, Jenny and Ryan, walked in. Prior to the trip, I would make jokes about Ryan conjuring demons in the cabin, and he jokingly agreed. He's goth, a little dark, but overall, he's pretty chill. They proceeded to explore the cabin themselves, each walking into different rooms. I was enjoying my drink when Ryan yells, Hey, look at this. We ran into the room he was in and found him in the walk-in closet. He was looking at old brooms, the type you see witches on. One of them had a weird face carved into the wooden part of it. We each had a laugh about the cabin owner possibly being a witch. We left him alone and went back into the kitchen to have a few more drinks when I hear him say, look what I found. As I looked over, I see him walk out with a Ouija board. Of course, Ryan's goth ass happens to be the one to find a Ouija board on Krista's first cabin trip. How fantastic. He said he found it at the top section of the closet. We all joked around about it and he put it back. At around 7 p.m., the third car arrived. Max and Angie walked in. By this time, it was dark and extremely foggy out. I rushed the board over to Max to show him what we had found. I'd been on three cabin trips with him, and this was the first time we'd found something that strange. We both laughed about it, and again the board was put away. Michelle had gotten a bit drunk, and accidentally broke two glasses, as well as popped the screen door off its sliding panel. We cut her off and put her in her room to sleep before anything else was broken. After a few drinks, Jeffrey brought the board back out. Max, Angie, Jeffrey, and Ryan began to use it. It moved here and there, but nothing too crazy. We each thought one of them must have been playing a prank and brushed it off. They said goodbye and put the board away again. It was about 12 a.m. Krista, Sammy, and I went upstairs to our room to get ready for bed. We didn't fall asleep, however. Maybe we were all a bit tense from witnessing them use the board. At about 3 a.m., we hear Jeffrey downstairs complaining about how we were all asleep and shotgunning beers by himself. Slowly but surely, Michelle, Angie, and Max came to join him. The next morning, Saturday, I woke up and got ready for the day. It was pouring outside, so we couldn't do much but stay in. I spoke with Jeffrey. He had told me that the patio door kept opening and closing by itself during the night, which is why he was up at 3 a.m. Now, I know what you're thinking. It must have been the wind, but the patio was a whole other room, four walls and all, no windows open, no way for a gust to come in and open or shut the door. I called Michelle over to speak to her about the broken glasses and screen door and asked if she could please not break anything else. She didn't seem to care too much about breaking them and said I'll pay for them. Later that night, after a few more drinks, Ryan brought the board out once more. Once again, Max, Ryan, Angie, and Jeffrey began to play. Sammy noped out of the living room. She didn't want to be part of any of it or witness it. Krista continuously told them not to be rude. Michelle and Jenny were in their room the whole time. They began to ask questions. Max, is someone here with us? The pointer moved to yes. Max, what is your name? B-E-N. While it spelled out the name Ben, you could visibly see the shock in each of the players' faces. Ryan let go of the pointer and started calling for Jenny while the rest were in awe of the movements. Angie asked, Do you want to party with us, Ben? No. At this point, Angie's tone got a bit sad and she said, Oh, I'm sorry, Ben. We'll, we'll leave you alone. And with that, the remaining players said goodbye and the pointer moved to goodbye. Right after the game ended, Krista spoke up. You guys, there was a murderer in the town by the name of Ben. 
Everyone had a bit of shocked expression. The town we were in is very small. Its population is only 10,000, while our city is 340,000. I brushed it off and said it's too vague, it could be anyone. We can't really confirm that's who we spoke to. About half an hour later, Jeffrey grabs the board and begins to play by himself. He believed the others were playing a prank on him and moved the pointer themselves. So while he played, he spelled out, Your mom, gay, and kept saying the board was a joke. The next day was Sunday. Jeffrey began to drive us home, and at some point he must have blanked out on the freeway. I was typing up my apology to the cabin owner on the phone about the two broken glasses when I hear him say, I'm sorry. I heard the brakes screeching and looked up to see us quickly approaching the stop car ahead of us. I quickly grabbed the thick blanket on my lap and put a layer above my dog and curled my body over her. We swerved a bit but luckily avoided the accident and thankfully the car behind us stopped in time too. We arrived home safely and that was the end of our trip. A few days after the trip, Max tells me Jeffrey has been having sleep paralysis, which he had never had before. He said whenever Jeffrey would try to sleep, he would see dark figures laughing at him. It happened so often he was afraid to sleep. Max and I found it a bit funny. He was messing around with the board spelling out your mom is gay, and now this is happening to him. I messaged the girls in a group chat to let them know the tea. Michelle's response got me a bit worried. She had also been having sleep paralysis. She's had it before, but it had gotten worse after the trip. She had also been witnessing figures laughing at her and having visions of bad things happening to her friends. I was a bit confused. She didn't play the board during the trip. Why did her sleep paralysis suddenly get worse? I came to the conclusion of Jeffrey disrespecting the board and this was his punishment, but Michelle disrespected the home Ben resides in by destroying its property, so she was punished as well. I'm not sure if the board really caused this all, but I do wish we found out more about Ben. All I know for sure is Jeffrey never wants to play again. I was trying to leave. My ex-boyfriend had multiple problems. Along with drug and alcohol issues, he was dealing with mental health issues, schizophrenia and bipolar. I did not know about the mental health issues for several months when we began dating as he was on medication. He did great most of the time when he was on them, but was the complete opposite without them. In the beginning, he was always nice to me. He liked to drink and smoke weed, but he was in his early 20s. I figured he was just going through that stage many people did. He hid his harder drug use from me. Meth, opiates, heroin, crack, Adderall, coke. At one moment in my life, I had fractured a vertebrae in my back. The doctor prescribed me Vicodin as I was dealing with a huge amount of pain. One day, I caught him stealing the little bit of Vicodin from my purse. His habit and usage slowly increased every day. He wasn't doing all these all the time, but more and more. He eventually got to the point where he did whatever he could get his hands on, as much as he could. Think hillbilly homemade meth. In just over a year, I found myself with an addicted boyfriend who would steal money, drugs, and sell off his and other things to get his next fix. He had become violent and emotionally, mentally abusive with me, especially when drunk. A few times, he grabbed my steering wheel when I was driving and tried to run us off the road because he got mad. He also stopped taking his meds. He became suicidal, paranoid, and started hallucinating. He manipulated me to stay with him. He said he would call and tell my mom I was using drugs. I was not, except the occasional marijuana use, which is still illegal in my state. 
He also said he had friends in law enforcement or that he had an uncle in a biker gang who would take care of me if I left him. He threatened to kill himself also. One night he cut his neck with a knife. Attention seeking, not bad enough for any real injuries. He spent 72 hours in psych, he lied about his condition and they released him. He couldn't keep a job and wasn't paying his bills. He wrecked two cars, got 12 tickets and two DUIs within a year. He refused to get help. He didn't have a good relationship with his home because of these issues. I needed to leave for my own safety and well-being. After almost two long agonizing years of dating and being terrified, I let his family know what was going on. I went over to his place to gather my things and end the relationship. I should have just left, but I was stupid and I convinced myself that I needed these things, no matter how valuable they were to me. I went inside and tried to pack up the things. He was napping on the couch. I was trying to be as inconspicuous as possible. I thought I was going to make it without a fight. I was wrong. He woke up as I returned inside from taking a box out to my car. He asked what I was doing. I said, just taking some stuff to my car that I wanted to take home. But he knew that I was packing up and leaving. Scared, I grabbed a few things I needed the most and walked quickly out as he yelled. He came out after me and dragged me back inside by my hair. He threw me into the wall, took me by the throat and yelled at me. He threatened to kill me and burn my mom's house down if I took one step out of his house. I was terrified and I 100% believed he would do it. He was so far down in his addiction, mental illness and violence. I was terrified because it was not unusual for me to stay at his place for days at a time. It was Friday so work wouldn't miss me for a few days into next week. His family disliked him so they wouldn't be over. He carried on as usual, wanting dinner, watching movies, drinking, etc. while I followed his instructions, scared. He had taken my phone and keys but stupidly just set them in the bedroom. As the night grew on, I kept trying to think of ways to escape. He followed me anywhere I went, except the bathroom. He let me have my privacy there. The bathroom had two doors, one to the hallway and the other to the bedroom. Unfortunately, the bedroom door was never used as the bed partially blocked it. Thinking this might be my only chance, as quietly as possible, I snuck into the bedroom just managing to squeeze through the door. I grabbed my keys and stuffed them into my shoe. I stuffed my phone into my bra. Then I hurried back into the bathroom and flushed, washed and exited like I had only been using the bathroom. I still had to buy myself enough time to get away. I was acting agreeable with him. I apologized and said I wanted to stay together. I was trying to be as nice as I could so he would let his guard down. He was so out of his mind he thought things were getting better. I kept pushing him to drink beer and smoke more weed. Lately, he had a habit of drinking and doing drugs till he passed out. He eventually got very drunk to the point he could barely walk and kept nodding off on the couch. This was it. I said, I'm going to get you another beer from the fridge and then bolted out the door. I peeled out of his driveway, stopped at the gas station down the road and called the police. The police came, took him into custody and interviewed me. I explained about his mental illness and he ended up in the psych ward for a couple of months getting his meds back on track. He didn't get in legal trouble that time, but... I also didn't push it. I was just glad to be out. I was also glad that he was getting psych, drug, and alcohol help. It's been years. I still talk to his sister. The meds don't work as well as they used to. He's completely self-absorbed now. While he has control of the schizophrenia, he still abuses drugs and alcohol and is driving his family to their wits end. I'm so glad I worked up the courage to leave and I'm glad that I was able to get away that night.
A small world after all. Back in 2011, my significant other and I were backpacking in Laos. We ended up in that very isolated village called Muang Noi. To get there, you need to take a three-hour bus from Luang Prabang to Nong Kwa, then a one-hour ride upriver on a fisherman's boat. There are no roads to reach the village, and once there, there's no internet, no mobile network, and electricity is only on a couple hours in the evenings. It's a beautiful area, though. Mountainous, with caves to visit, riverside beach, etc. Although not completely off the map, it's a place where few travelers go, and it happened to be off-season when we went, so there was no more than 10 to 15 visitors in the whole village at the time we were there. In the evening, everyone returns from their treks, cave crawls, and boat rides, and gather in the only bar hostel of the village, on an elevated wooden terrace by the river. The night falls, and little by little groups merge and everyone ends up sitting on big pillows, sipping cocktails and talking about life and travels like their old buddies, whereas no one knew each other just a few hours before. To this day, this is one of my favorite backpacking memories, and what came soon after made it even more memorable. So, there's this Australian woman, Ronnie, who took the same boat as us to get there. She's a bit odd, something's off about her. She tells people how she was diagnosed with a terminal illness but made a miraculous recovery, and now she's traveling everywhere in Asia with the funds that her friends had collected for what was supposed to be her last trip. Then, there is this Australian guy, Ken, who arrived one day after us. He's quite the traveler, and quite the talker, too. There are also Spanish, American, and French people there, too. At one point, someone asks Ken if he is married. He starts joking about it. But then he proceeds to tell the story of how one day, about 20 years ago, his wife, who was from New Zealand, just vanished. She left him, without warning, a note, or anything. They got in touch later to arrange the divorce, but Ken said he never saw her again and he never heard anything from her after the divorce. He told the story with humor, but you could tell that this had been a devastating experience for him. At that point, Ronnie, with a very calm voice, inquires, was her name Karen? I look at Ken and I see his face decompose, going from brash and confident to livid. The place falls silent. He replies, yes. How do you know her name? Do you know her? Ronnie proceeds to explain how when she heard his story, she realized she knew the exact same story, but from the wife's perspective. She had met that Karen at one point in her life. She described her physically to Ken and it was an exact match. At this point, we were all looking at each other with big eyes, speechless, absolutely stupefied by the scene we were witnessing. So then comes the mega what the hell moment. Ken asks if she knows what Karen has been up to since they met, and Ronnie replies, she's dead, with a dead, serious tone and face. I swear to God, although I had a few drinks, I sobered up instantly. No one was speaking, everyone was staring. Ken was absolutely stunned. At that point, I was half expecting an alien ship to come out of the sky or, or that Ronnie would turn into a demon and eat us all alive. She gave some more details about Karen's passing, it was a car accident, but unfortunately, I don't remember much else of what happened and what was said after that. Soon after the bar owner was closing and asked everyone to leave and we all called it a night. I mean, what are the odds of something like that happening?
Send Daddy in. It has been close to a year since it happened, but I remember every detail vividly. It's impossible to forget. The following event happened to me just a short while ago in the winter of 2016. On a visit to my sister, my wife spotted an intriguing pair of religious philosophy books in my sister's bookcase. When my wife mentioned it, my sister offered to let her borrow them. Several weeks went by. One afternoon, I noticed my sister's books on my bookshelf. The books were laying sideways in front of my other books. These books catch the eye because they deal specifically with the worst kind of occult material. I recognized them as such because I had flipped through several like them in the past when I was investigating some of those religious philosophies that are particularly disturbing. I don't typically keep books like that laying around because I worry about my children. I had never encountered anything to confirm any of my admitted superstitions, but those books scare me. Think of that Van Hagar album title for unlawful carnal knowledge type of stuff. I asked my wife about the books. She told me she thought they were ridiculous and refused to read any more of them. I gave her an intrigued, hmm. I told her I was going to put the books on top of the printer on my desk to return to my sister when I got the chance. At the end of that day, I was coming out of the bathroom from teeth brushing and walked by my desk. I saw the books. Curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought it back. I walked over to the desk and flipped the top book open to a random page. The only sentence I read was and will continue to be one of the most repulsive things I've ever read. I quickly closed the book and jumped back. I am not easily revolted. I had read the likes of Jack Ketchum, Edward Lee, Bentley Little, Brian Smith, and so on, but I refused to repeat or write what was in that book. I decided then and there that I am going to make a special trip the next day to return them. I shake it off, get in bed next to my wife and my youngest child, and quickly fall asleep. I immediately wake up in a dream. I have had lucid dreams before. This was different. I knew I was dreaming, but there was more real than real. I sensed everything in vivid detail. It was also different in the sense that I felt I had no control of it. No flying or superpowers realized here. It didn't fill me with awe or wonder, but rather confusion ruled the moment. I also sensed that I was not alone. I was standing outside the rear of the house in the cold. I was completely bundled up in my canvas snowsuit, winter coat, insulated boots, and gloves. I could see my breath. I was standing in front of one of my firewood racks. The only thing out of place was the unusual size of the moon above me. It was so bright I couldn't see the stars. Nothing too surreal. I had this internal dialogue with myself. What are you doing outside in this dream? You don't need a cigarette. It's so cold. I heard my voice in my head the way that I do when I mull over conversations after I've had them. My voice speaks up again in my head, but... It's not mine. It sounds exactly like me, but it is as if I'm giving myself unsolicited advice. The voice says, you are dreaming. Just lay back and close your eyes. When you wake, you will be in bed. I silently acknowledge it, and it was awkward trying to lay down all bundled up. I lay down on the hard, frozen ground and look up at the sky. I see the suddenly shrinking moon through this black circle with an even blacker sky behind it. I see a last bit of frozen breath float away above me and I fall asleep again. And I wake up again. Once again I'm extraordinarily lucid but sense completely powerless. Once again I am certain I am not alone. I'm standing in my bedroom with my desk. I recognize the familiar desk, closet and general size and shape of the room but everything else was missing or in shambles. The door to the bathroom is missing with broken hinges hanging off the frame. Through the opening, I see the wall in the bathroom is missing with shattered drywall and broken 2x4s framing the opening. 
The wall with a sliding door that leads to the back of the house to the woodpile where I had laid down earlier was also missing. The big moon shone through the broken wall and painted everything with a gray monochrome light. The air was musty and thick with motes of dust glittering in the huntress illumination. As natural as can be, I cannot resist stepping further into the room closer to the desk. The desk is covered in the dust that saturates the air. On top of the shapeless printer lay the only contrast of color in the room. The two books lay on top where I had left them previously. The dust doesn't touch them. They don't reflect the light, but seem to absorb it like a singularity. Something small with a tiny flashing red light lays on top of the books. Curious, I get closer and see that it's a black flip cell phone. I involuntarily pick it up and take a closer look. I don't recognize it as anything I own. A light turns on and illuminates an LCD display indicating the time. I even remember the time. It was 3.12 AM. The phone vibrates and begins ringing. I was not startled. I seemed to be expecting this call. The tone was vaguely recognizable as something from an old-fashioned circus, but all the notes were disjointed and sloppy. The LCD screen switches from the time to a picture, like a portrait you might assign to a specific contact to identify the caller. The portrait was that of a misshapen head and shoulders. It took my mind a bit to take it all in. This enormous almond-shaped purple head seemed to stare at me with huge black elliptical eyes. Looking closer, I see that the huge black eyes are not eyes, but rather deeply shadowed concavities in an enormous forehead. The head seems faceless, but then I notice two tiny luminous orange dots on what looked to be a narrow chin below the enormous forehead. A jagged tooth grin lay below the dots where the neck should have been. This thing appeared to be nude from the look of the shoulders, and even what I could see of those were a deep purple color. On autopilot, I slowly raise the phone toward my ear and flip it open with my thumb. Listening, I hear screams of men and women in agony in the background of the call. I calmly speak in the third person as if I'm talking about myself as a spectator. When I finally greet the caller, my voice is slow, low, and monotone. I drone, Daddy can't come to the phone right now. There is a pause and more distant screams before a dry, raspy, papery voice replies even more slowly, Send Daddy in. The last two words are uttered in two syllables. The way somebody might utter a taunt with a slight elevation of the tone in the last syllable. I want to pull the phone away, but a warm feeling washes over me. The voice that is not my voice once again speaks in my head. He can help. Overcoming your fear proves your resolve. This is your chance. When I feel a grin on my face, a cold shower of horror washes over me. I pull the phone away from my ear and look at the screen. The purple mottled skin portrait looks alive. The tiny dots on the chin are orange diamonds of light that extend beyond the borders of the phone. The grin has become as big as an incomplete circle that somehow extends above the orange eyes up onto the forehead. The shoulders have dropped toward me like a bull ready for charge. I throw the phone out the broken wall behind the desk. I wake up immediately. When I awake in bed next to my wife and son, I noticed I wasn't wearing any clothes. I never go to bed without clothes. I have the blankets up to my chin and feel chilled to the bone. I put my hand on my bare chest below the covers and it feels like an ice cube. This would prove to be the only tangible evidence I would receive as circumstantial validation of the event. Saner heads prevail and I immediately think, my god, I need to throw more wood in the stove, the family is freezing. My son and I are under the same comforter. I reach over and touch my son's shoulder and he feels as warm as a space heater. 
I can't sleep anymore, so I check the stove. While it has burned down a bit, it is still radiating ample heat. I throw a few logs in and walk into the bedroom with the desk. Everything was exactly as I left it. I step over to the sliding glass door to figure out where I laid down in the first dream. I must explain here that I raise my own free-range chickens. I collect their eggs and occasionally slaughter some of the roosters or older hens for meat. I'm not Jewish, but I think the kosher way is the most humane way. I always say a little prayer to express appreciation for the creature. I don't cut off the head. I cut the neck with a 12-inch concave razor made specifically for this purpose. I keep it surgically sharp. Then I put it upside down into a metal cone I have attached to a tree near the woodpile to bleed it well. Because the head is still attached, the heart still pumps. This hastens the bleeding. I don't eat the blood. The chicken passes in seconds, and chickens are miraculously calm when they are upside down. I'm sure that sounds barbaric, but you better not hassle me if you buy your meat from the grocery store, have killed a mouse, squashed an insect, or even used antibiotics to kill bacteria. My chickens are well cared for and even receive a portion of my time and attention. I'm looking at this metal cone and I realize where the dark circle above me in the first dream was before I fell asleep. I was looking at the moon through the hole at the bottom of the cone as if to catch all the blood I had spilled there to devour it. Realizing this, I grabbed the books and tossed them into the stove. I burned some sage and told myself I will pay my sister back whatever amount of money those books cost. So. To the grotesque, discarnate intelligence, I respectfully say, please don't visit me again. Something in the air. Recently, my boyfriend and I came to stay with his mother due to some medical issues he is having. Around 10 p.m. on Monday night, we kept hearing someone pull on the screen door as if they were trying to yank it off its hinges. She lives on a pretty dark street out in the country. I'd come down the steps to go out for a smoke. The second I hit the bottom step, his mom had shushed me, telling me that she thinks someone is trying to break in. I immediately run up the stairs and grab my boyfriend. We didn't hear the door trying to be open because we were upstairs. He carefully unlocks the deadbolt and the screen door and jolts out of the house. It was way too dark to see anything. His mom said the rattling stopped when I turned on the light from the stairs. At first, I thought it was the wind rattling the door because his mom is a little over-exaggerative at times. I must have startled what we thought was an intruder with the staircase lights. There wasn't even a slight noise outside the house. My boyfriend, a friend of ours, and I all decided to light up a cigarette and sit on the lit front porch. His mom had called the cops by this time. We were waiting for them to arrive. The door frame had been busted a little bit, and his 10-year-old little sister was petrified. After our cigarettes were put out, we heard a rustle in the leaves on the side of the house. All of us paused. Then my boyfriend and our friend came from separate directions to try to trap the intruder. He took off into the woods behind our house before they could catch him. The cops still were not there at this point, so my boyfriend and our friend run into the woods after the perp. As they're in the woods, you can see a light coming faintly through the brush. I thought, that's funny. All of our phones are in the house and I have the only lighter. I walked behind the house calling for them to see if it was them. No answer. I called again. Nothing. Finally, the last time I called into the woods, I saw a figure come out. I thought it was my boyfriend, but the figure didn't say anything back to me. I stood for a second as it was walking towards me. I soon realized it was not him. A glimpse of light hit him, and all I could see was a white mask and he was wearing a black hood. 
It almost looked like the Phantom of the Opera mask, but a full face mask. I took off into the house having a panic attack. When the police arrived, my boyfriend was yelling in the woods. They lost track of the guy. The police searched the woods. They said there's no way they crossed the creek because the water was undisturbed. Nothing turned up and the cops left. We didn't hear anything for about two hours. Then all of a sudden we heard our car door shut. My boyfriend and our friend went to investigate. By the time they grabbed knives and flashlights, whoever was in our car was gone. We didn't notice anything disturbed or missing. Before we locked the car up for the night, my boyfriend went to grab the air freshener out of the back seat. It was gone. He asked me if I took it in. I didn't even know he bought it. I started smelling something in the slight breeze. It smelled of apple cinnamon. It was coming from the woods. As we were walking to the woods, we heard a whisper. It sounded like, come play with us. We immediately bolted for the door and phoned the police again. They again searched the woods in front of the creek and turned up with nothing. It seemed as though they thought we were on drugs, like they didn't care. We didn't hear anything for the rest of the night. Yesterday morning, we went walking in the woods with walkie-talkies and knives. We came to the creek and noticed a fairly new makeshift bridge made from several small fallen trees. We crossed and kept trailing into the woods where eventually we came across an opening in the trees. There were several candles set up in a circle along with what looked like a bloody sheet. Off to the side, there was a bloody mattress. I didn't see or hear anything. The craziest part is that when we went back, all of that was gone. The cops don't believe us and I'm scared to go outside at all during the night. Hanging out. I had this friend who was really into the occult. Unfortunately, I was the one who got him turned on to it. We had a mutual appreciation of the paranormal and all things weird, so I thought the subject would interest him. He started going deep into the subject to the point where he wouldn't talk about anything else. He would actually interrupt a conversation and force the subject back to the occult matters. Rude, but sometimes people go through phases where their interest is all they want to talk about. It was a mostly forgivable offense. I think I should mention that this particular friend didn't have a very large friend circle. His depression and introverted nature kept him inside a lot. He didn't have the best of luck in relationships with women. His world was kind of small and I did enjoy hanging out with him, so I did my best to be a good friend. I didn't want to just brush him off because he was acting a little weirder than normal. Honestly, for the longest time, he was a totally normal guy. We'd chat and play games together on the PlayStation. Sometimes we'd go see movies with my boyfriend accompanying us. We all hung out at the park, went swimming. Overall, we had a good time hanging out. Things started to go downhill when he started to smoke DMT. Personally, I think psychedelics are an amazing tool that can offer insight into your life and they should be treated with respect. My friend got to the point where he was making it himself, apparently a pretty easy thing to do after a meager amount of research, and he was smoking it daily, multiple times a day. For those of you who aren't familiar with the substance, when you smoke it, you get transported to a different world, an entirely new plane of existence. Your body and yourself don't exist anymore. You're just exploring this alternate reality dreamscape, my personal experience with it led me to see a dragon once in this kaleidoscope of a cornucopia. People see all kinds of different things there. Imagine what that does to a person when they're smoking it 30 plus times in a day. He started telling me things like he was the reincarnated Osiris. 
He said he was seeing Egyptian hieroglyphs all over the place in waking life. Apparently, he had hour-long conversations with entities in his bedroom even when he wasn't smoking DMT. Of course, I was very alarmed to hear all of this and I told him he needed to take a serious break. No drugs at all for a few months so he could find solid footing in reality again. At this point, I was still hanging out with him because he obviously needed some help. And like I said before, he didn't have a lot of friends that could give him that. He was also the black sheep of the family, so I knew he wasn't getting any kind of support from them. He was really close to his sister, and I did reach out to her on Facebook to express my concerns. I pushed her to talk to him into getting some psychiatric help because he was slipping past the point of no return. I'm not sure really if she took my messages seriously since we didn't really know each other. Plus, she is at least six years younger than us and probably didn't grasp how serious the situation was becoming. In any case, I'll jump forward now to the part where things start to get really creepy. My boyfriend had made arrangements to hang out with our friend at the park. I didn't really want to go because I felt like I needed a break from him and his nonsensical ranting. I just couldn't deal with it on that particular day. My boyfriend said he wasn't all that bad and we went anyway. We get to the park and he is his usual self, ranting about Egypt and made up gods that only he knew the truth about, etc. He also had this large hunting knife that he kept fiddling with the whole time we were on a walk. He told us that he had been using it in ceremonial magic and that it helped to banish negative thoughts. It made me extremely uneasy. He would do this thing where he would take the knife and make stabbing motions near his heart or his head, like he was mock stabbing himself all while holding a conversation with my boyfriend or I. I think we were both really on edge and didn't know what to say or do about it. I tried to distract him from doing it by bringing up other subjects that might interest him, but he kept on with his ritual. Keep in mind, we were walking on a trail, so it wasn't like we could just say goodbye then and there. We had to walk back to our car and drop him off at his car. My boyfriend had the bright idea that we should get some lunch after our walk, even though I was doing my best to give him a look that said, No, why do you think I want to spend any more time with this nut? But it must have not been very effective or my boyfriend was ignoring it. Not sure. Either way, we ended up getting in the car to go get lunch. In the car I was driving, my boyfriend was in the passenger seat and our weirdo friend was in the back. As we're heading through a busy part of town where all the shopping and restaurants are, I hear the distinctive sound of a belt buckle coming undone. Then I hear the worst sound imaginable. I peek back out the corner of my eye and my suspicions were confirmed. This crazy dude was full on jacking off in our back seat. I mean pants all the way down, bare ass on the seat, beating it so hard it was like he wanted to rip it off. Instantly I felt sick to my stomach and all the nervous energy I had throughout the day popped up into my head. I was trying not to shake and trying to ignore it and drive through heavy traffic. I kind of had a freeze response I guess. The whole time I kept thinking about the huge knife he had in his pocket and obviously he was completely off his rocker now. I was afraid to say anything or confront him because I didn't know how he was going to react. Now this part is nuts, but my boyfriend didn't seem to notice. The whole time he kept rambling on about God knows what. I couldn't listen because my thoughts were 100% focused on driving and trying to act like I didn't know what was going on in my back seat. We went to the restaurant and my boyfriend runs inside to grab food. I'm left alone with our friend. I try to act like I'm browsing on my phone when really I'm watching and listening as hard as I can. We don't talk. My boyfriend gets back and I complain that I'm tired and it's been a long day. Let's drop him off, etc. So I drive us back to our friend's car and he doesn't get out of our vehicle. He just sits there. 
I have to get a little bit rude and ask him to please get out and go home. He gets out of our car and walks over to his passenger side. I started getting really scared and I suspected the worst. He pulled out a gun out of some kind of bag he had on the seat and he just walks over to our car with it. I don't know why I did this, but I was so pissed I just got out of my car and walked right up to him. I was maybe three feet away from him and I could see it was a loaded 9mm. I kept asking him over and over, what are you doing? Because apparently that's all my brain could think to do. I told him to get in his car and go home. He never said anything during this whole time. Just kind of cried and had this wild look in his eye. For whatever reason, he got back into his car and drove off. I told my boyfriend, obviously, we are never hanging out with him again and that I didn't even want him to talk to him anymore. No contact, nada. A few months pass, and he occasionally messages me through the PlayStation or texts my phone. He says a lot of random stuff and I just ignore it. Turns out he moved near Nashville. I don't know why. He had a roommate and I think their girlfriend lived there. I'm really not sure about the situation. I think maybe he's turning his life around and getting a fresh start down there. I think it's best to cut all contact and let him regroup. I'm not interested in any kind of friendship with him, and I know he needed help beyond what I could offer. Again, I reached out to his sister and let her know that he had a gun. She managed to get it from him somehow, but it did little good in the end. I get a call around 11pm one night that wakes me up. It's a man claiming he's a detective down in Tennessee and my heart skips a beat. I start sweating and immediately ask what happened. Apparently, my former friend stabbed someone to death on Halloween day. I don't know all the details, and the articles about it are kind of sparse. The whole thing is really surreal, and I'm just left feeling like I'm lucky that I didn't get shot last summer. Old Childhood Home Over the course of a few days, I've come to remember a number of pretty weird happenings around my childhood home. I've been able to confirm some with my parents, but my siblings often do not remember, tend to believe that it may have been a prank by other such siblings, or outright deny it ever happening. It'd probably be wise to explain a little bit about our house. Early in the 90s, my parents moved from their original city to a new city, with my mother pregnant with my younger brother. When shown the home, my parents took note that nothing was out of the ordinary, but the showing itself was rather brief. They were also in a little bit of a hurry to move into a place. They soon decided to rent the house and moved in. To their dismay, they found the basement filled to the brim with markings all over the walls and ceiling floorboards. The walls had spray painted Nazi symbolism all over the walls, coupled with what my father describes as odd circles, but my mother confirms as witches circles or demonic markings. Some burned into the wood. My mother later confirmed a few Ouija boards etched into the walls as well. They complained. Instead of moving out, they had the basement cleaned, repainted, fixed, and continued to stay for the duration of my childhood. Ages 5 to 9, the beginning. The first occurrences happened when I was between the ages of 5 and 9 years old, continuing for the entire 4 years. Roughly every night, I would refuse to go upstairs under any circumstance. I would physically refuse and fight my mother or father and would often throw a huge fit when they attempted to physically move me upstairs. When finally asked why I was so vehemently refusing to go upstairs, I outright told my parents the girl in the white dress at the top of the stairs says it's not safe yet. The funny thing is, I remember the little girl up until recently. I can't remember her face, but I remember she was about seven and would tell me not to come upstairs. It wasn't safe. She wouldn't outright speak. She would somehow convey the message while shaking her head. 
I remember that because it scared me the most when I was a kid. She would look in the direction of my room for a little bit every so often, then simply look at me and disappear. That is when I knew it was safe to go upstairs. Ages 10 through 12. When I reached the age of 10, this stopped happening altogether. Never saw the girl again, but different stranger things began to happen. Late one night in our backyard, someone was murdered moments before my father came home. Fortunately that night, he decided to come through the front door instead of coming through the back. Later, odd meat was thrown into our backyard and we found our dog smelling at it. My dad brought him in and the police restricted all access to our backyard for the remainder of the year. We later found out that the victim was shredded to death. We always assumed that that was the meat. Of course, this likely made things worse as a lot of blood from that meat was on our property and took a while to clear out. Within the same year, my brother and I had a small area set up for us in the basement to play. Each time we would go down there and we would hear strange whistling. This whistling was very similar to a human whistling a tune while doing busy work but was often eerie. For an entire year my brother and I were trying to find the source of the whistle and when we found it, we were terrified. I remember it well. I was turning 11 soon and we followed it to behind the furnace. There we found a shadow similar to a human shadow cast upon the wall. It was tall, it had a hat, no features just like a normal shadow. It confused us because we didn't understand how a shadow was there because there was no light behind the furnace. It was dark, but this shadow was somehow darker. Then it looked at us. And I use quotes on looked because physically it couldn't look at us but we just knew. We knew it was looking at us. Then it whistled. I'll never forget the tune. I'm not sure if anyone knows the tune but it was the tune used for yodeling. Yodelehi hu. Needless to say we ran upstairs to our mom terrified. She came to check it out despite us telling her not to and found nothing. We didn't play in the basement for a week after that. But every so often we would hear the whistling during the week and despite us asking our parents if they heard it, they never did. We went back into the basement to play at the insistence of our parents as we were getting in the way of cleaning, etc. Everything was okay for a little bit, but eventually the shadow came back. It always get our attention with the same tune, always trying to convince us to come and touch it, to see it. Neither of us would approach it, and we realized it was stuck to the walls, literally. It couldn't go upstairs and could only travel along the walls freely except for the stairway wall. I remember telling my mom about this when I was older. She confirmed that the only wall not covered in symbols was the wall with the stairs and the stairs themselves. As long as we remained away from the walls, the shadow man couldn't get to us. It eventually resorted to yelling before eventually leaving forever. When I was 12, it never happened again. However, the basement still continued to have weird events. During the summer of my 12th year, my cousins, brother, and I were playing as my parents and other family members cleaned up after a barbecue. As we played, the furnace began to glow a bright red on the filter door as if it was being heated by a torch. It had started from the center of the door and grew to encompass the entire door before receding and leaving a bluish green stain behind. Needless to say, we're all confused. My cousin, who often spent time with his contractor dad insisted that we take the filter door off and check if it caught fire. We tried to tell him of the weird stuff but he didn't believe it and was convinced the filter burned. Upon taking the door off and inspecting the door, it was pristine on the inside in its entirety. The door was still the standard silver without any indication of burning and the filter was its standard whitish gray clean and new as it was replaced not too long ago. He took the filter off and there was just a vent below that, a sizable amount of space 
and a space to reach the pilot light hatch for the furnace. He put everything back confused. We got our parents and his dad checked everything out. Save for the door exterior, the furnace was in perfect shape. After this incident, nobody would go into the basement again for a while, unless to store things. At least until I turned 16 and insisted upon no longer sharing a room with my brother. I had forgotten the past and decided to move into the basement. Ages 16 through 18, the end. Things started to get a lot more terrifying when you sleep in an unfinished basement at night. Consistent nightmares and weird sightings to the point where I often slept at my friend's house to simply avoid sleeping in that basement. But I will share the most terrifying experience that I had discovered as my friends ceased to ever stay at my house and insisted upon staying at theirs until we moved. Due to often staying at my friends' houses, their parents began to get a little frustrated that I would never invite them over to my own home to stay the night. I often insisted against it, but eventually relented as the perfect opportunity came up when my friend's parents were away for a week and he was to stay behind with me at my place for a week. Needless to say, he was delighted, but I was extremely worried. To explain the basement a little, in order to gain some privacy and as my family was not well off, we set up a wall using a bedsheet staple to the beams of the basement ceiling. These sheets were effectively the walls of my room with a small opening as an entrance. Anyway, I digress. Everything was fine for the most part of the week until roughly the fourth day. Around midnight, my friend couldn't get to sleep and decided to try and get some shut-eye in the armchair in the corner of my room which faced the bedsheet wall. As I was asleep, he awoke in a cold sweat and noticed the bedsheet ruffling a little bit. He noticed what seemed like a handprint on the other side of the sheet pressing against it. Assuming it was my sister, who had a crush on him at the time, he jokingly asked the person on the other side to come around. He tells me that the hand moved along the sheet with little giggles towards the edge that was used as an entrance. As it neared the entrance, he expected to see my sister, but nothing appeared. He looked behind the sheet, and there was nothing. Nobody. He didn't sleep the rest of the night and told me about it the next day. On the fifth day, he got over it and determined he was dreaming, and again, the nighttime came. He again woke up in a cold sweat that night to find a girl in a white dress about our age standing beside my side of the bed just looking at me. He told me she wasn't scary, her face wasn't messed up, but she looked sad. When she saw him, she simply looked at him, frowned, and walked towards the exit again, but he didn't dare move. He told me I was having nightmares as she stood over me. He didn't stay the rest of the week. About a few months later, we moved, and he always wanted me to stay at his place until the moving date. When he would come over, he never went into the basement, not even to help me move my stuff. I dream about the house every so often. Weird, lucid dreams. I can never really go into the basement in these dreams, and sometimes I can't enter the house. But it always seems different. The Backwoods my name is Brian. From the time I was four years old, I've lived in the forest in a fairly remote part of Virginia. I don't generally wander around on foot at night for obvious reasons, but I've definitely heard some interesting sounds. On many nights at varying times, usually between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., I've noticed chimes sounding. Sometimes they're very high-pitched, like the sets of wind chimes people hang on their porches. Other times they're deeper, like the big orchestral sets you play with mallets. Usually the wind chimes are random, just like a set clanging together in the wind. And no, we have never owned any wind chimes. 
I've checked on many occasions when it started to drive me bonkers. The deep chimes, though, always form some melody, and it's always different. Being a percussionist myself, I started memorizing the melodies. When I would go into band class, I would take random sheet music I found and play it on the school's chime set, hoping to find something that sounded remotely similar. I never found anything close to what I heard. The sound is also best heard from the kitchen, not outside. It's like it originates in the kitchen by the back window. Again, I've torn that kitchen apart looking for any kind of speaker or some elaborate prank, but I've never found anything and I'm not sure what to think of it. Here's another thing that happened. At the end of the road I lived on, the road forks. One way leads down another residential section. The other leads down a poorly kept dirt road that leads into the back end of the next town. About 300 yards from the fork, down the dirt road, there's a property on the right, sitting on the creek. It's roped off from the road, so people can't just drive into it. There's a big picnic shelter set up in the back corner with a stone, park-style grill put next to it. The strange thing about it, besides the fact that it's in the ass end of nowhere, is that the property is always kept perfectly. The grass is always the deepest, most vibrant shade of emerald green, even in the dead winter, and it's always cut very neatly and low to the ground. From what I can tell, the shelter and the grill are spotless, minus a bit of wear from the age. But there's no graffiti or hearts carved into the picnic tables or anything like that. Again, none of this is terribly unnatural. Except that in 15 years of living by it, and taking that road hundreds of times, I've never seen a single person on the property, not even to maintain it. During the summer between my junior and senior years of high school, I checked it every day for a full two weeks. Not a soul entered that lot. Yet the grass stayed perfectly kept. Unless someone sneaks in at night to mow it in the pitch dark, I can't think of a reason for it to be so untouched by nature. I did some digging and even asked my closest neighbors in the area. Nobody seemed to know who owned the property or how it was maintained. My friends and I would joke that if you stepped onto the property, the illusion was broken and you could see the property as it was, dead, decaying, and rent asunder by time and the elements. None of us ever stepped onto that lot though. Something about it just screams at every fiber of your being not to step over that rope line. I think there's something there that wants to be left alone and I have every intention of honoring its wishes. When I was 16 and I had just gotten my license, I was out late with a friend of mine, Brady. I was driving us back from a party. I was sober, mind you. It was about 1.30 in the morning. On the road that turns off into mine, there's a house on the right that sits on a massive field and next to the road is a big pond. It's still a back road, so there are no street lights, but the moon was out and I could see it reflecting off of the pond. As we come up on it, a deer runs into the road from the left and I hit the brakes. I was nearly stopped and I looked over to see this deer that, admittedly, had nearly made me shit myself. In my peripheral vision, I saw something else move. There was a light, a blue light, moving in circles around the pond. It was so small and so dim that at first I thought it was just a floater in my eye, but as I focused on it, it became more visible. It was like someone was running laps around this pond with a little blue LED light. In fact, I would have believed it was someone doing sprints around this pond with some sort of camera recording them and that the blue light was the recording light, except nothing runs that fast unless we have a rare species of backwoods cheetah that I'm unfamiliar with. The pond was easily 20 yards across. This light lapped it every three seconds or so. It didn't seem innately threatening, never made a move towards the vehicle, but the deer had already set me on edge, so I was quick to hit the accelerator after the initial shock had worn off. For the life of me, I couldn't logically explain what it was. 
I've always been more curious about it than afraid, but I've never seen it since. The last story, for now, is another one that happened while I was driving home when I had gotten my license. I lived towards the end of the road and at the beginning there was once a large farm. It's been repossessed now and subdivided into individual lots. I'm pretty sure it's because the old farmhouse that sat on it was condemned. The elderly couple who lived there was forced to vacate. I was driving home one night around 2 in the morning. It was a new moon so it pretty much advanced darkness. I could see the farmhouse in my headlights. I turned to look at it out of habit as I passed. In my side mirror, I saw something that gives me chills to this day. I saw a man in my brake light standing right on the edge of the road. I'm 100% sure that he was not standing there when I was approaching the house because he would have been standing directly in my high beams. He was middle-aged looking, fairly tall, and although the light was pretty dim, I could tell he was wearing a red and black checkered flannel shirt, work boots, a black beanie hat, and what I believe were plain black sweatpants. He also had a long, thick beard. He actually looked like some sort of typical lumberjack. Not uncommon dress for the area, but it was his face that scared me the most. He looked directly into my eyes, with absolutely zero expression on his face. Behind the expression though, the malice in his eyes was almost tangible. When I broke eye contact, I noticed he was holding something in one hand, something with a handle. I had no idea what it was. It could have been anything from an axe to a hairbrush, but I didn't care at that point. I drove faster than I had ever driven on that road. I flew up my driveway, sprinted inside, locked every door, grabbed the rifle we kept in the hall closet, turned on the outside floodlights, and waited. I was home alone that weekend, so there was nobody to wake up. I sat on the steps, looking out the front window until the sun came up. I relaxed a bit when I saw the sunrise. I finally managed to fall asleep in the living room with the TV on at about 9 in the morning. I paid close attention to everyone I saw on that road for the next week or so, but I never saw that man again. I have no idea who he was or what he wanted from me, and I'm perfectly content not knowing. Cargo friend. I started my new job at Will Rogers Airport. I say new job, but I was really just moved to a different airline. I was still working in the same ramp agent position. Now I have to tell you that I have a crippling fear of heights. My least favorite part of being a ramp agent is when I have to climb in the cargo bin on a rear loading plane because it's about 20 feet above the ground. This particular night was a strange mix of uneasy feelings. It was raining, not just light rain, but pouring rain with a few scattered lightning flashes and random power surges. Every now and then, we have dead bodies transported in the cargo bins. This was one of those occasions, and tonight was my lucky night because my manager told me I was throwing the plane. Throwing meaning I was pulling the cargo out of the bin. It was the last plane for the night. There wasn't very much cargo beside the body. My coworker John pulled the ramp loader to the plane. He raised it up so I can walk up the conveyor belt to enter the bin. About four other co-workers come over with a baggage tug for the cargo. I say to everyone in a louder than normal tone because the rain was loudly smacking the metal shell of the airplane, I hope y'all are ready. I'm not trying to be in there all night. John laughed and said, don't worry about it. Maybe you can make a new friend in there in reference to the body. I didn't think it was funny, but I chuckled and told him to shut up, let's get going. I climbed into the small and cramped space. I sat in the bin as far from this human-sized white cardboard box as I could. I pulled my phone out of my pocket to select a playlist to listen to while I throw the bin. I find a good one and start working. The conveyor belt moves at a snail's pace. 
you have to wait until they scan each individual package so I can't just throw them as fast as I want to to get out of there. About 10 minutes into it, I'm getting closer and closer to this box. My music stops playing. I have earbuds that short out when they get wet, so I automatically assume that rain somehow got on them and I just needed to shake a little water out of them, but they were bone dry. I checked Spotify to see if it was a glitch or problem with the app. I see I have an unread text. Did I get a notification and forgot in the midst of my rap field baggage handling? The way my phone is set up, when I get a message, it will tell you who it is from, but it won't display the message. You have to access them to read it. The message was from an unknown number, which was very odd because very few people have my number to begin with. I clicked the notification to read the message, and all it said was hi. I sent a text back saying, uh, hey, who is this? My phone displayed that whoever sent the message saw mine immediately after it sent. I waited and no response. I started my playlist back up and got back to my job. Shortly after there was a loud crash of thunder. So loud the plane shook. It made me jump at first but I quickly rationalized it and returned to work. I noticed the conveyor belt was no longer moving. I yelled to John, what the hell's going on? Why did it stop? John replied, damn thing ran out of gas. We're gonna take this load of cargo to drop off while we get another loader, okay? Sit tight. I think to myself, well, where else am I going to go? About one minute later, it got cold, like I could see my breath cold. I wrote it off as just a cold front and reach over some stranger's luggage to lean on while I wait. As I look over for a bag to grab, lightning went across the sky. I saw a quick flash of a little boy, 11, maybe 12 years old, sitting on the white box, staring at me with his eerily happily smile and his head turned slightly to the side. My heart sunk and I froze never taking my eyes off of that box for what felt like hours. I was startled by the replacement conveyor belt starting up right next to the plane. I darted to the moving conveyor, crawling as fast as I could, trying to keep my balance and my panic down at the same time. I hit the ground, looked at John and said, nope, I'm done, you're gonna have to go in there. I didn't want to explain exactly what I saw, but John knew something scared me. He asked me, well, what's wrong, who is it? I stuttered and walked away before I could say anything. Then I got a new text message notification that I heard loud and clear this time. A response from the unknown sender saying, it's your new friend. The Lost Town. The following was recovered from a journal found next to a mummified corpse in an abandoned mine in Brewster County, Texas. Sometimes things do not go as planned. The heist certainly did not. I meant it to be a simple job. Masks, a few guns, fast horses, a big score at the end. The big dumb deputy got Jim in the back about a minute in. By then there was smoke in the air, screaming, lots of noise. I always knew Jim would die of a bullet, most likely in the back. I think he knew the same. I should have known that the sheriff would post a deputy at the bank. It made no sense. We'd spent the previous night torching the Canaveras ranch Shot old man Canaveras, shot his ranch hands, shot the wife and the children. Let one run to town with a hole in her arm, in her bloody nightgown, so as to attract attention back to the ranch. Then we rode hard around the gap to town, and waited until the kids rode up, nearly dead, screaming and hollering about murder. The sheriff. I thought he was stupid. At least more stupid than me, and I fear I won't make that mistake again. We saw thirty men mount up and ride off toward the Canaveras ranch. We waited a quarter hour and then moved in on the bank. It was Friday and I had paid well and more to be certain that there was gold in the vault. 
We had ten men, including myself. Krusk and Jeffers kept the horses and the wagon. Ned and Wash watched the back. And Lou, Roy, Mace, Purse, Jim, and I slammed through the front doors. I paid a certain whore to ask certain postcoital questions of a certain bank manager. And true to the whore's word, the vault was wide open. Lou blasted the ceiling once, declaring the robbery. Roy and Mace fanned out toward the back, and Purse, Jim, and I moved toward the center of the bank. That goddamn deputy, we didn't see him at first. He'd just been sitting inside the front door as a left. If he had been on the right, it would have been me dead instead of Jim. Ultimately, the better deal. The second shot was the deputy's, punching through Jim's back and out his belly, splattering two fine gentlewomen with his blood and bile. Jim spun and looked at me, blinked at me, and he died. Purse turned around and gopped at the deputy, gun held limply in his hand, cocked but unused. I spun and put a bullet through the deputy's eye before Purse could complete the thought of what had happened. My blood was up by that point, the red rage hazing across my vision. Tap tap, two fine gentlewomen, both dead. Purse's mouth gaped, tap, Purse was dead. With us for only two weeks, hired for a fractional share, he had proven himself to be the weak link. Named Purse or not, fools are born to die. The men looked at Purse and Jim and at me. Gentlemen, now that I have your attention, may we proceed with this robbery? They jumped to it. Roy's head exploded backwards the moment he stepped into the vault. His corpse collapsed to the floor, boot heels jittering against the floor. Mace yelled, there's another one in the vault. I shot the bank manager in the face. His glasses flew off onto a desk behind him. It made me feel a little bit better, but not much. I'll take care of it. Cover me. I walked purposefully into the vault. Fired two shots at the steel floor and ceiling. Reloaded faster than most. Fired another shot at another angle and heard a yelp of pain. Gotcha. Dropped and rolled. Twitched slightly left and shot the second deputy in the chest. Stupid bastard was aiming up as if I would have made the same mistake as Roy. We're running late, gentlemen. Loaded up. Mace yelled out the back for Ned and Wash. We loaded up the bullion into waiting crates in the back of the wagon. The street was empty. There's a lot of eyes on us, clear out. We mounted up and began to move down the main street. A hunter's instinct made me twist in my saddle for a look over my shoulder. The third deputy, the man on the roof of the warehouse across the street, took his shot then. The bullet caught me, twisted around, high up on my shoulder blade instead of through my heart. It didn't hurt at first, and then it hurt a lot. I awoke with a bad headache, made worse by the bouncing wagon. I asked, where are we? Wash handed me a flask and I drank deeply. Water. Wash was no fool. Neither was he a talker. But at some point I had gathered that he had served as a medic in some army or another. He was a miserable shot, but he could take a leg off faster than any sawbones I had ever met. Dug a bullet out your shoulder. You'll live. Will hurt like a bastard. Don't move it. For Wash, that was quite a speech. Mace rode alongside the wagon. We're on schedule, sir. Ned took the decoy wagon north, ditched it at the river, and met back up with us last night. If anyone could evade the tractors, it was Ned. The boy's mother was Paiute. Though he was young, he seemed to be half ghost when in the wilds. I asked, last night? Mace scowled and spat a brown steam of tobacco onto the ground. You've been out a day and a half, sir. Wash says you'll live. We have just over $500,000 in gold bullion jostling around in the back of the wagon. We murdered men, women, children, and horses. We're being hunted by every lawman this side of the Mississippi. 
I do not think those hunting us will be fooled for very long. Get the men, change of plans. I sat on my horse, my right arm in a sling, the reins wrapped around my fist. The pain was at times quite bad, slicing down my arm in waves, but I would be damned if I would let my men know that's how I felt. Damned more. May stood near me, next to his own horse. Jeffers was meticulously cleaning his two revolvers by lamplight. Ned curried his own horse, removing brambles and checking hooves for rocks. Wash and Crust leaned against the wagon, and Lou sat on a rock, idly whittling with that wickedly sharp blade of his. He picked up each wood sliver and placed it into a pocket to be burned later. My men were no fools. Time for the second part of this plan, gentlemen. And I tell you about this part, and I do apologize for that. Could not risk the lives of all of you if one of you had been captured and made to talk. I owe all of you my deepest thanks for following the plan so perfectly and for saving my life after I had been shot. The men had the grace to look slightly embarrassed and Krusk might have blushed. It was hard to tell through the deep stratified layers of grime on his deeply tanned face. I told you all that we would head east to the river and hire a riverboat there. That was a lie. We committed monstrous crimes and our faces will be widely circulated at every town and port along our path. No, we'll ride south and west, then due south, cross the border. It'll be several weeks of hard riding and it will be hot. We are a day's ride from a cache of provisions and we'll need them, as we will not venture near any towns or farms. We'll shoot anyone that sees us for we cannot have tale of our travel reach wrong ears. When we cross the border, we'll angle east to the sea and hire a ship there. I hear the tropical beaches are beautiful this time of year, and with your shares, you will each and every one of you live like kings. Any questions? Ned moved, then spoke, flicking a nervous gaze to me, and then away, as if his eyes touched something hot. That's Indian territory. Some of those tribes... Haven't seen white men since the Spanish, since they killed the Spanish. Quite right, we'll be traveling severe and inhospitable paths, and as you will see, we will be quite heavily armed. Roy knew about the second part of the plan, not that it helped him in any way in the end. Two weeks before, he had parked two wagons laden with provisions in a small, scrubby arroyo several miles out of town, covering them with brush to hide them from any passerby. Move the gold to these two larger wagons and split it evenly. I want that wagon destroyed and its parts scattered in the brush. Our friend the sheriff might have a beat on its tracks and I don't want to leave anything behind. It's getting late and we'll need miles between us and our crimes. Thunder rumbled in the distance. Even in those dry lands it rained and those storms were often fierce. Krusk, prepare yourself, I said, as my men and I rode into the darkness. Crust glanced at me, puzzled. You may be about to receive your first bath. Thunder boomed again, and the first coin-sized drops began to fall. Crusk boomed with harsh laughter to match the thunder, and the men laughed along with him. We'd been riding for several days, almost a week, stopping only to rest the horses and for one of the men to take a turn sleeping in the wagon. We had successfully avoided the few small settlements and farmsteads scattered across the arid countryside and were steadily approaching the border. The rain would hinder our pace but could provide other benefits, including wiping out any tracks. I said, Mace, wake up. 
riding next to the wagon in which Mace was sleeping. Mace opened his eyes immediately and sat up. Rain's coming. Crack these barrels for fresh water. Mace crouched in the bed of the wagon and set to his task. Rain was coming faster then and the man began to shrug into leather coats and hats. Later the rain was falling, as it had for hours, in thick furious sheets that made it hard to breathe, much less ride. One of the two large wagons was stuck, heavy from its own weight and hundreds of pounds of gold mired in the mud at the bottom of a once dry creek bed. Jeffers, Lou, and Krusk were silently swearing and grunting, slowly levering the wagon out of the muck with sideboard planks and brute force. Ned said to me in a low voice, This ain't a good spot, sir. Too much water coming down, and it needs to go somewhere. He shook water from his eyes. The rain hammered down onto the raw, exposed landscape, trickles merging into streams that merged into creeks where hours before lay only pebbles and raw rock. The flash flood came only a few minutes later, a black wall six feet high studded with debris that included small trees and brush. It moved with a deadly, patient kind of slowness, stealing distance when not watched. The men and I abandoned the stuck wagon, Lou and Crust dragging the crates of gold bouillon high up on the opposite bank to rest near the second wagon and tossing bells and casks of supplies one to another up and away from the flood. Jeffer stood between the oxen and the wagon, fumbling with the rain-swollen leather of the hitches. He cursed as an ox kicked nervously at the rising black flow. Just Jeffers, leave them, I shouted through the downpour. The floodwaters were at his knees and the wall of debris was bearing down upon him. Yes, sir. Almost have it, sir. The four oxen surged up the bank out of the roiling black flow and Jeffers shouted his triumph. He walked away from the drowned wagon through now chest-deep water towards us and as he looked at me and grinned, a tumbling log hit him in the side of the head and he vanished into the soup. The men shouted for him, but I did not. We waited and watched the boiling, tarry black surface of the flood as mud-covered trees tumbled end over downstream. Lou probed several areas along the bank with long, flood-stripped limbs, but he knew as well as I that Jeffers was gone. We rode for several hours through slackening rainfall to stop at the edge of a freshly carved cliff. I said, this is new. Far below, floodwaters rumbled and roared. There's no way to cross here. We'll ride downstream to find a ford. We traveled alongside the cliff until dusk and I called a halt. Said camp here, men. We all need rest. Ned, this is unknown territory. Please scout our perimeter. Mace, you have the first watch. I busied myself with setting up a small oiled canvas tent, placed my cloak onto the slick bare rock and fell asleep almost instantly. Ned woke me at some small hour of the night. I rolled my shoulder, which was almost healed, but still stiff and viciously sore. The desert air had a chill and the stars shone down like hard cold eyes in the dark. Sir, you found something. I rose and shrugged into my cloak. Do tell, Ned. To town, sir. A whole town over there, just over the bluff. Did they see you, Ned? No, sir. I meant that there's a town, but there ain't no people in it. I weren't sure at first, so I snuck up on it. I peeked in the windows. Folk stuff's still there. There's no people. I said, rouse the men. Tell them we go in hot. Part 2 
We approached the town as if it were hostile. Guns drawn, wagon left on the outskirts. The town looked like any number of small mining towns that dotted the desert countryside, huddled against the slope of the mountain. There was a small strip of weathered buildings standing on both sides of the dirt track that served as the town's main street, leading to the entrance of the town's mine. Ned was correct. The place was empty. There were goods in the small store and even bottles of whiskey in the saloon. The buildings were in good condition with unbroken glass in a few of the windows. What happened here? breathed Mace. I said, I, I do not know. Whatever did happen, it seemed to have happened fast. These people left in a hurry. Cruss asked, Engines? I said, I do not believe so. We have seen no evidence of a struggle. Besides, most of the tribes in this area were rounded up for reservations a few years ago. Even if there was some holdouts in the area, I doubt they would want to draw attention to themselves by making trouble. Wash sat up straight in his saddle. Smells like death here, boss. I frowned and inhaled. Something. Underneath the desert scent of creosote and the local stink of men unwashed from days of hard travel, there was the faintest tracery of rot and decay. Weapons at the ready, gentlemen. Death is near us. Best not to let him too close. We found the livestock in a slaughter pit on the far end of town, near the mine entrance. Cattle, oxen, horses, even a few dogs, each with a slit throat and stacked in a rotting pile that crawled with swarms of insects. Our horses whined and stamped, nervous at the scent of their dead kin. May said, a lot of livestock there, sir. He was spooked. I could hear in his voice. It looks like they killed all their stock. Why would they do that? He twisted his reins in his hands as his horse sidestepped. Wash said, might be the plague. Never heard of one that get the livestock and people both. Could happen though. In that case, move back to the other end of the town. Might spread by bad air, I said, and cantered down the road. The men followed. We'll hole up until dawn, search the town for provisions, and we ride. At the other end of the town stood a small, weather-beaten gray church. We hobbled and tied the horses, and Krusk fetched the wagon closer. Mason and I entered the church first, guns drawn, torches in hand. My men and I had seen many horrors through war and years together, had inflicted some of those horrors. The sum of those events was a tiny thing compared to what we saw in that church in the flickering red sputter of torchlight. None of my men, nor I, were religious chiefly because most religions would have damned us to hell for any one of our countless crimes. It was, however, disturbing to see a place that people once thought was holy to be so defiled and so utterly desecrated. The altar was bashed and broken, covered in filth. The crucifix was torn from the wall and lay on the floor, smashed into several pieces. The pews were pushed against the wall in a splintered heap. In the rough center of the floor were the townspeople, or what was left of them. The rotting, blood-slicked pile glimmered wetly in the dim light. The bones and red, raw meat ripped apart and mashed together, such that it was impossible to tell where one body ended and another began. The low whispering sound I heard as I entered was the sound of millions of maggots and corpse worms and beetles, expending their furious energy feeding upon their feast. This was not the worst sight, however, in that church. Look up, Mace stammered, 
His eyes, floating huge and white in cavernous sockets, shocked blue and black from fright. His open mouth worked in ways that suggested a scream or worse, laughter. I looked up, suspended from the ceiling by chains and nails and lengths of wire and ropes were what at first looked like to be white sheets, until I saw the stretched and distended face on one of those sheets, a dirty mass of curled blonde hair, the limp flop of shriveled penis or a sagging empty breast. Each skin was whole and glinted with the sickening shine as some unwholesome wetness coated them, dripping from them in a thread-like streamers. Out, Mace, back out. I smashed the door open with my boot and walked backwards out the door, Mace following. I bellowed, torch this town, gentlemen. Lou looked at me quizzically as I ran to the wagon for a jug of kerosene. Something bad happened here, Lou. We burn this place to the ground and then we ride. I splashed the front of the church with kerosene and set it alight with my torch. Lou took the other jug of kerosene and set to work dousing the other buildings. May stared at the open door of the church, now licked in flames and said nothing. Ned and Krusk rode up from the direction of the general store, saddles packed with supplies. Ned asked, What's going on, sir? I said, Where's Wash? We burn this place to ash and we move out. Krusk said, I ain't seen him. Thought it was you. Go find him. Torch the buildings as you go. Leave nothing standing, I said, and had it crust the kerosene. The buildings lit quickly, even though they had been dampened by the rains. Soon the flames rose tall above the buildings, casting wild red lights and shadows up the mountain slopes. Mace was working furiously, thin lips pressed to the point of invisibility, a flop sweat on his forehead, ashes at his temple making him appear corpse-like in the glow of the fires. Boss, yelled Krusk from near the mine entrance. I found something. Mace and I hurried down the dusty street with burning buildings all around. Slumped at the edge of the slaughter pit, sprawled like a child's broken toy, lay a human corpse. Most of, rather, the corpse was missing all of its skin. Is that? Krusk began. Wash, I said. It looks to be his size. Crust stared at me with unbelieving eyes, skin below the grime bloodless and bone white. Boss, if that's Wash, where, where's his skin? Who did this to him? Krusk knelt near the corpse and held his torch close, only to drop the torch and scramble backwards as the corpse began to shudder and twitch, turning its eyeless face towards the torch flame. The body spat in a gout of black blood splattering Krusk's face. The body jerked hugely once more and then pitched back, its last breath bubbling from the red wound that had been its mouth. Crust looked at me with an expression that was pure misery and fear. You're still alive, boss. That... that ain't right. Why would they cut him up? Why, why would they leave him alive? Shots rang out from down the burning street. Mason and I spun towards them, guns at the ready. Crust staggered to his feet. Lou ran towards us, blood on his shirt, long blade in his hand. Lou yelled, Stay clear, Ned. He's gone mad. He came at me with a knife. A shot boomed in the night. Liar, Ned shouted, revolver smoking in his wavering hand as he staggered into view. He was limping, clutching his abdomen, and we saw his bowels spilling from between his blood-drenched fingers. Ned screamed again, the splitting howl of a dying man whose only hope was to murder his own killer, and he fired once more before toppling to the ground. Lou's expression of shock and terror abruptly turned to one of malevolent glee. He twisted to the side, 
twisted inside his clothes, inside his skin, the flesh ripping open and long bloody rents tearing like a wet cloth at the joints. Ned's last bullet skimmed through the air where Lou, or the thing wearing Lou's skin, had been a fraction of a moment before. The thing reached up and pulled Lou's face off of its face, bubbling and chortling with a thick clotted sound that might have been laughter. Its skin started glittering in the firelight and spiny twitching legs or arms or tentacles unfurled and felt the air. It flung the flesh away, slawing off clothing and shredding skin and in a flicker buried Lou's long knife in a crust chest. Crust dying scream shocked Mason I into movement, backpedaling and stumbling, firing shot after shot at the creature as we fled into the gaping black mouth of the mine. I fell long before I heard Mace's dying screams. The fall shattered both my legs and possibly my spine. The pain was intense, waves of it enough to make me black out. I know I'm dying. My torch is burning low now, but I've been able to complete this confession in my journal. An officer always keeps a journal. I hope that others find this record and understand my warning. There are things down here in the dark just out of reach of the torchlight. Sometimes I can hear them move. Sometimes I can almost see their shapes. I think they're eggs. In the shadow of my demise. I would have taken this to the grave, but a deal is a deal if it was real. I'm gonna tell this story. It's not gonna be an easy story to tell. I've never been religious and will never be. But I've always had interest in learning about ancient beliefs and shamanic spirituality. This journey into my soul has left me joyfully afraid of what happens when you seek to know what your unaltered view can never see. How ancient and current cultures view these shamans. How we treat and monetize punishment because society deems these types of medicine illegal. My entire life I've chalked everything up to pure coincidence and nothing more. Whether it be baby me found crawling on a Texas interstate by a state trooper, carrying a baby door to door in a tiny Texas town, split in half by an interstate only to find a screen door busted through and my grandmother sound asleep on the couch, happens to all of us. I remember being around 9 or 10 and an older kid around 17 asking me to steal cigarettes for him. Having been a poor kid who grew accustomed to stealing from the four gas stations in town, I accepted the challenge. Back then, they had cigarettes on display like they were Red Bulls, just in a giant cardboard bin full of cigarettes and easily accessed. I asked the gas station clerk how much the batteries on the bottom shelf were. When he turned, I pocketed as much as I could grab, took the smokes back to the kid. He proceeds to pull out his penis and try to trick me into something beyond petty theft. I kicked him and ran away. Full of anger and nervous rage, I cried alone and never said a word. Next day, the kid was found dead. They said that he somehow drowned in his backyard pool. Life went back to normal. My mother was so loving. My father brutal and cold. The kind of man that comes home drunk and coked out at 2am on a school night, barging into the room his three children shared, playing war pigs full blast. When we cried he would kick us all out of his house, screaming that we weren't his family and he doesn't want us. My mom would get us in the truck, try to start it, but nothing clicks. Father was a mechanic in the military. The prick would turn the distributor caps, forcing us to have to walk to a neighbor to ask for a phone at three in the morning. 
Pizza Hut, personal pan pizzas, and so-called sincere apologies always worked on my mother. I was never convinced. A hatred grew. Hatred boiling into murderous thoughts of putting an end to the fear. There was a time my father's younger brother, who was a local gang leader, asked me to bury a bag full of guns under my grandmother's house. I did. All except for one. Finally, I was going to be able to tip the scales against my abuser. I hid it in my stash box just before my mother came in and told us that we're moving to Indiana and we all needed to pack up our stuff. My mother and sisters were going to drive up and find an apartment. My father and I would stay behind and pack up all our stuff into a U-Haul truck and drive up as soon as we were done. A wrench was thrown into my plans, but I wasn't going to give up. I was 14 years old and I had the stolen pistol in my stash box, hidden inside a duffel bag, hidden inside the back of the truck. The plan was I would wait until our last gas stop, retrieve the gun, and save my family from this selfish man. When passing through Kentucky, my father said he had to take a shit and get gas. The man drove the whole way. He didn't believe in paying for a motel or stopping every 15 minutes for my overactive bladder full of jolt cola and a thirst for revenge. Comes out of the store with a bathroom key and heads into the bathroom, clinching his cheeks. Not knowing what I had in store for him was well beyond having poop drip down the side of his cut-off jean shorts, complete with Copenhagen cut out in the left side pocket. He shuts the door. I dig out the duffel bag and open it up. Say hello to my little friend. But it's gone. The stash box full of my herbs and potions, the pistol, just gone. My dad comes to the back and asks what the hell I'm looking for. Stop messing up stuff and let's go. I never found any trace of it. I searched and searched through every inch of the apartment. Never found a trace of my stuff. If my dad found it, he would have beat me. But no, it was just gone. My father was a new man now. No longer around his loser friends and family. He never hurt me or my family after that. Somehow, my anger was forming into pages and pages of songs, poems, and just random thoughts. I started to have a dream of leading like-minded individuals down paths of glory with a sound of war drums echoing through the darkness. I had a best friend who planned alongside me. We wanted to move to California, and with my experience in street pharmacology, I was able to save up enough money to live off until we found jobs. He was going to bring his girlfriend. We all hung out and had a blast. But before we set the date, the two ran off with all our equipment and left without me and my money. They ended up homeless, living in a car and getting robbed. They either lost everything or just pawned it for drugs. Now he works at a local Walmart, and she is happily married to someone else. So I gave up on trying. I always planned on being dead before I was 28 anyways. Trafficking large amount of plant material and living across the street from the downtown police station, living recklessly with blatant disregard for authority, the laws of men or gods. Then I got married. I had a daughter. I stopped the illegal activity the day she was born told my father-in-law that I was done. A week later, he's locked up for 13 years in a federal penitentiary. I had a son soon after. I was just ready to be a miserable human being on the inside and project confidence and ignorant bliss until my death. 27 came and went. I was still here to raise these children. Since my father-in-law was locked up, the Fed seized their huge cabin. We stripped and sold everything, down to the copper wiring we ripped out of the walls even sold the front and back doors. My mother-in-law was now homeless. She moved in with us and helped with the kids. This put a strain on our marriage. I became distant from my own tribe. My girl ended up cheating on me. 
we went our separate ways. We both found someone else. And that only increased the divide between us. The new love of my life had soon turned into just a constant acts of betrayal. Still confident in our love, I let her continue to hurt and disrespect the new version of me. I became a more thoughtful and generous person who had little to no care about my own well-being. We ended it. After a night of tears and fake well wishes, I rested for the final time. I woke up to the sound of a text message alert. It's my kid's mother asking if we can switch weekends. This wasn't uncommon to do, but having been hurt and alone, I wanted my kids to be with me. The, though the thought of being alone on a weekend for the first time in years sounded fun, I, I said no. I had already asked off work and couldn't afford to lose the hours two weeks in a row. She drops our kids off. I notice my son's face is swollen. His lip is busted and one eye is turning black. I call their mother. She says he was wrestling with her boyfriend and he fell face first on the ground. I told him, if he ever hurt my kids, I would smash his head in with a brick until it resembled hamburger meat on the sidewalk. I asked my daughter and my son. They both said the same story as their mother. It wasn't until the night before they had to go back, my son told me that he didn't want to go there. He said he couldn't tell me what he did because her boyfriend might get mad and hurt him more. I cry and I tell him that he won't ever be hurt again. I tell him that his father is a destroyer of evil and darkness, unafraid of what hides in the shadows. The next morning, I awake yet again to my text message alert. It's their mother asking if I could keep the kids longer because her boyfriend is out of control. She's going to leave him. I say, of course, and offer to help instead of breathing fire and letting her deal with it. At this time, she's six months pregnant with his child. But I know in my heart that if she hadn't birthed my children, I wouldn't be alive. So helping this woman is something I must do. I offered any assistance. Later that same day, she says he apologized for kicking her out of the house and not letting her leave for work by taking her keys. The story starts to have a familiar tone. There will be no need to find a stash box this time. I'm no longer a scared little boy. I am now death in its most honest and sincere form. I wield the power to seal this man's fate. I send her the photos I had taken of my son's abuse. She sends me photos of people with severe skin conditions. She's a nurse practitioner and knows damn well those marks aren't a skin condition. At this point, I see rage and still have a decision to make. Do I just end this man and spend years behind bars robbing my children of a father? Or do I call CPS and file charges? I call CPS and they interview my son. He says that he would be tied up in the basement and tortured. He would be asked about what my then girlfriend and I asked him about or what he would talk to me about. My daughter tells us that the son was tied upside down with a rope and when their mom's boyfriend untied the rope my son fell on the concrete floor and that's how he busted up his face. I called their mother and tell her kids will never be over there while he's there. I never told her about the CPS interview just that the kids said he was hurting my son. My daughter said he would make her lie down in bed with him. She felt uncomfortable when he would rub on her stomach. The CPS agent advises me to keep my children until she can further investigate the matter. I agree. After all, I am a man of my word. And I got the brick already picked out from my yard. From what I was told, my ex-wife argued with her boyfriend. She told him he was the reason she couldn't see her kids. He left a message with her to give to me. Bring the kids over because he won't be there anymore. He went to work at the factory down the street from my house took a metal log chain 
and hung himself in the back of the factory. Now everyone gets to think that he was just some tortured soul. Revenge escapes my clutches yet again. I wept out of envy of the chain. The kids didn't go to the funeral. I dived deeper into trying to self-medicate and search for answers to why. Why have I been made to feel cursed and yet blessed at the same time? The LSD starts to wear off. It's around 2 a.m. I get this feeling that something is watching me. I know part of the blame is on the drugs, but I've been alone before and never experienced a fear like I did this night. I end up watching a Portuguese comedian who looks just like my uncle, the same uncle who had me bury the guns. I start fearing the unknown instead of facing it head on like I had done in every one of my dreams up to that point. The lights in my place start to flicker. I just decided to turn off the breaker in my basement and sit by candlelight. I decide I want to make a video about why I was robbed of justice, but my phone won't turn on. Neither will my laptop, which is never unplugged. I'm afraid to turn the power back on. Then my TV turns on. Three of what I can only describe as beings of light appear and explain that I must warn humanity. I should use the writings that I've amassed over the past 24 years to do it, that this life was just a test, that we will all be controlled by technology. I panic, ran out of my house and stand shivering in the cold wet grass. I was told that we should have never left the caves. There was a reason we danced before the firelight. I was scared at first, but then the feelings of fear vanished. Visions of the past, present, and future flashed inside my mind. Are we just an experimental planet out in the vast universe for others to study and manipulate? The beings told me that all the events in my life were all planned. I wasn't going to die until I did my part. I asked what I was supposed to do. They warned me people wouldn't believe me without evidence. They brought up God and how everyone was fooled by blind faith. That we were just puppets. My TV turns off and on, showing the comedian version of my uncle walking around like a puppet. I was told that we have to reverse course. I was to gather as many people as possible to witness the truth. But what if I don't want to be anything more than this lonely man who writes songs that never get heard? The very sound of my own voice just makes me want to curl up in a ball under my bed and hide like I did those nights my father just needed something to hurt. I am the kid who lied and took his sister's punishment. I couldn't begin to calculate the amount of times he told me I was worthless. I told the beans, you got the wrong guy, and if the plan depends on me, then we're all screwed. But what they offered me in return is too much to shrug at. I still want to believe it was all just a wild vision, but when I'm alone, I get this feeling of being watched constantly. Am I going to be turned into one of those crazy people banished from society for sounding like a crazy person? Is there a God controlling our every path forward? Or is God just an easy explanation for not knowing the truth? If I ran around telling people to destroy their phones, they would call me a crazy person and label me as a drug experiment gone wrong, only to give me some other form of drug to numb the mind and ease consciousness. It would be a sight to see the Grand Canyon full of people dancing around the fire chanting for the light to swallow the darkness of this world once and for all, then back to the safety of the caves. I only fear the world my children will be left with. I welcome death, but still would rather swallow the endless pain of existence and continue forward until I can no longer walk. Then drag me, I beg you. Let me die alongside the ones I've loved until the sky opens up and justice showers on all that remain. I know what was promised to be real. 
even if it's just a simulated version used to keep me in a never-ending cycle of false beliefs. Believe what you want, but if it isn't good and hurts innocent people, then save the world. Let justice and decency prevail in the shadow of your demise. Thank you for listening to Just the Terror with Nick Guerra. Make sure to check out True Scary Stories with Edie on Tuesdays. Give it five stars and stay scared, uglies. <laughs>